Amen. Today's message is about freedom. Um, so we want to, I want you to keep that idea in, in your mind as we uh, walk through this. It's freedom from yourself and freedom from the world. And the beatitude this morning is, the pure of heart shall see God. And the paradox of that is that only the pure in heart would really want to see God. When was the last time that anyone saw the Father? We had the disguise of the Father in Jesus on earth. We had the burning bush. Abraham entertained visitors. There was a fourth man in the fiery furnace. But the last time that God's presence was manifested in the earth as himself was in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Now, the renowned humorist and theologian, and those two words sound very distant from each other, but in actuality, if you take theology seriously, that is pretty humorous. But anyway, the renowned humorist and theologian, Mark Twain discussed this in a reprinting of Adam's diary. Wednesday, I built me a shelter and the new creature made distress noises, so I let her in. She isn't much of a bother except that she talks all the time. I know that sounds like a cheap slur, but really, this is a new sound and it's Fairly constant, and it's first on one side, and then the other side. Non-stop. Thursday. The naming goes recklessly on. I had a very good name picked out, Garden of Eden. But she says the place looks more like a park. So consequently, without consulting me, it has been named Niagara Falls Park. And tomorrow, she says she's putting up signs. This way to Cave of the Wind, Goat Island, this way. She's also eating too much fruit, and I think we're going to run short. Friday. She says the lions and tigers are doing poorly on grass, and their teeth seem to indicate they should be eating each other instead of daisies. Well, I told her this would introduce death, which had not yet entered the park, which is a pity on some accounts. Saturday, she's taken up with the serpent. He talks. She talks. This is a peculiar talent to both of them. So this is a relief to all the rest of us. But she returned from one of these conversations to announce that the fruit will open us up to new possibilities. I said, it will bring death. And she said, well, according to biological principles, the lions and tigers would be happier. Sunday. The lions ate my house. They would have eaten me if I had not emigrated, but it was to no avail. She found me anyway and named the place Syracuse. She brought some of the apples, which is against my principles, but then again, principles only go so far when you haven't eaten. So, the last time we had purity of heart, 
was in the Garden of Eden, when there was Adam and Eve and God walking together. In the literal chronology of the Bible, the garden would have occurred about 6,000 years ago. But anthropologists dating the fossil skeletons that are exactly like ours today indicate that we were in the garden about 250,000 years ago. But we were there as a creation of God. The vehicle for humanity and the image of God himself with purity of heart. There was physical complexity. Our eyes and hands and skeletal articulations are identical to what we have today. Man knew where he was. He knew what he was. He appreciated time and space. And there was the ability to consider and reflect, to measure cause and effect. We were not animals. We were creative and inventive and artistic. We were in the image of God. There was a consciousness of spirit which was breathed into us by his breath. We knew ourselves and we knew God. And we could make judgments of truth and beauty and goodness. Contrary to Darwin, we were able to invent and create and produce art. It wasn't our opposable thumbs that made us human. It was our ability to reflect and reason and exert our will. Contrary to the beliefs of John Calvin, we had and still have a free will. And this, rather than the forbidden fruit, was what ended our brief sojourn of purity of heart. Purity of heart is all about motive and dependence and surrendering and freedom in that surrender. It's about surrendering to someone else's will instead of exercising our own. But we desired to live the lie that we were independent. Adam and Eve wanted to be on their own. They wanted to have some corner of the world that was just theirs. And it doesn't take much reflection to remember our own quest for freedom or our teenage idiots who don't want to sit under authority. As C.S. Lewis put it, we wanted to be nouns, but we were made to be adjectives. We weren't made to be the subject of everything. We were made to be descriptors of God. We were created to describe God by our lives and to show the world his reality by living our life through him. We were not made to be him. And so ended purity of heart. And the last time that we saw the Father. In Eden, they turned away from God and the life of the Spirit and turned to themselves. The physical life operating on impulses and desires We were cut off from God. The body soon controlled us. And we were on our own. The sin in the Garden of Eden was not a sin against man. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. 
It's at a timeless level. It's bigger than social morality or religious doctrines or do this or don't do that. As St. Augustine said, there is only one sin. And that sin is choosing ourselves. We want to exist on our own. We don't want to need God. We certainly don't want the will of God. Adam and Eve were keenly aware of him. Their contact was face to face on a daily basis. But they also became aware of themselves. And they chose themselves. It's the same sin that we commit individually every day of our lives. It's the basic sin behind everything. At every moment, we're either committing it or about to commit it or repenting of it. Uh, We try to commit the day to God, but before we've even eaten breakfast, it has become our day. We don't actually pray that God will forgive us and we get a new start and we change. We just want to be excused so we can get on with life. We forget the words of Jeremiah when God says, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, for welfare and peace to give you hope to your final outcome. Mrs. O'Reilly and Mrs. O'Shanahan were out of their way, and they'd gone to church on that Sunday. And they stopped on the stairs, both of them coming out, and they thanked the priest, and then they looked at each other. And Mrs. O'Reilly said, Well, it's you. Don't think I've forgotten what you did. But it's Sunday, so I forgive you. But Monday starts a new day, and we'll see about it then. Purity of heart lasts as little as possible. And yet, God says, we are encouraged to be so. And so the journey journey of purity of heart is a journey back to Eden. It's back to the beginning. It's a rescue of our inner self from the world. It's a participation in the world through the Spirit of God. It's the reality of God in our lives. In Eden, we were formed from clay, but we were made alive and immortal by the breath of God. And then we became lost in this world. We call this life. But Eden is the reality. Chandler, Arizona is not. So let's talk about why we don't pursue purity of heart. So there are, I have six reasons why this, we don't do this. The standard is unattainable. Since the Beatitudes reflect an ideal, and I am only idyllic in my own eyes, I cannot attain perfection, so why try? We compare ourselves to others. Well, compared to others, I'm way ahead of the curve. Since all the rest of humanity, them Jews and Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and homosexuals and commie liberal Democrats are going to hell. 
I'm doing good enough. Average is okay. I'm way better than the guy sitting next to me. Well, take a look at the person sitting next to you. You're better than them. If you open the dictionary to the word mediocre, that person's picture would be by the definition. We are complacent in our salvation. God is content with me because I am a Christian. I really don't have to live like one. I can just wear the name tag. I punched my ticket by saying yes to Christ. So I can sit in church on Sunday and do what I want to the rest of the week. It belongs to me. Purity is beyond our capacity. My inability to reach purity is because of my genetics. If you're a creationist, then that's the born in sin thing. And if you're an evolutionist, that's like the ape thing. And, well, nature isn't pure, so why should I be pure? It's enough to be moral. I obey my moral duty. I haven't killed anyone today. I haven't slept with your wife today. Measured against the Ten Commandments on good days, I'm a four of ten. And that's Hall of Fame batting average. We were never intended to be pure in the first place. We are not holy. We are not pious. We're not pure of heart because if we really were, then we would have to come face to face with God and nobody wants to do that. These are good reasons not to be pure. Who really wants to walk with God? That would put a crimp in our lives. But if we did perchance decide to pursue purity of heart, what would we do and what would it look like? It's all about motive. It's not about product. God is very concerned with our motives. But from our motives come the product. So there are four areas of our lives that I think could use some purity of heart. Community, giving, communications, and a plan to get there. Community. We're all here for a variety of reasons. It's like my kids, I teach school, so it's like my kids at school. Some of them come to be with their friends. Some of them come to learn things. Some of them come because it's the law. Some of them come because their parents don't want them home. Some of them go to school because the big yellow thing pulls up and picks them up and takes them somewhere. Some of them are there for good reasons. Some of them are just there. It's the same thing on Sunday. We are here for a variety of reasons. So we stand here or we sit here and we listen to the 30th message that we have heard on giving our will over to God. We are invited to cross the river and head for the promised land. Instead, we smile, we shake Pastor Dwayne's hand going out, good word, Pastor. We go out in the parking lot, we get in our cars, we drive off, and we 
circle in the desert again. We've done it 29 times. Why shouldn't we just keep going? The journey from the Red Sea to Canaan is 11 days. Maybe 13 if you're herding goats or small children or if you stop at Walgreens for sunscreen. It took the Israelites 40 years. How many years is it going to take us to leave Egypt behind? We want to get to the promised land, but we don't want to actually do anything to get there. So we walk out the door and we keep circling the desert. Sometimes in the church service we actually clap our hands or sing or let the words melt into us or raise our hands. And it may look like we have purity of heart but without actually having it. And I myself am an expert at this. I'm an expert at appearing interested. I'm doing it right now. The most immediate church background for Vicki and I is the charismatic church. And um, so, um, and in charismatic churches, there's a lot of outward expressions of the spirit, of purity of heart. There's lifting of hands, there's prophetic words, there's speaking in tongues, there's music that sometimes goes on longer than the messages goes on, there's audible praise, all these other kinds of things. And you can look really pure of heart um, without having an inner motivation to that. Um, and sometimes it looks like, so one of the expressions in the charismatic church is lifting, raising of hands, you know. And um, so we don't do that much here at Hope, but that's okay, because it's all about motive anyway. But when you're in a charismatic church and you're looking at people, you're going, wow, man, they are really, they're really into this. They're really, they're worshiping. You know, and so you'll see, raising of hands kind of starts with the little finger thing. And you just sway and you get back for you. The music's moving you. Oh yeah. And then, and then as the music goes on, you're getting more pure of heart. You go to uh, carry my TV, <laughs> widescreen, <laughs> and then that can graduate to Mufasa. And then as the music keeps going and you just, yeah, you're into it. And then, and then you can go to village people. Wash the window. Two windows. Rocky. Goalposts. Okay. So you can look really pure of heart and nothing can be going on inside. So looking at outward manifestations isn't always an indication of purity of heart. Matthew 23. The Pharisees, their lives are perpetual fashion shows. Embroidered prayer shawls one day, flowery prayers the next. People look at you and think you're saints. 
But beneath your skin, you are a total fraud. As compared to John 4, it's who you are and the way you live that counts before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out there looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves. Church happens in the heart. It's not a duty or checking the box or music like you would like it or the sermon that doesn't challenge or socializing with your friends or drinking coffee. It's a place of all of that, but it's also more. It's learning. It's listening for God. It's responding to his spirit. Church isn't a form or a certain music or raising hands or not raising hands. It's us sitting here finding God and letting God find us. When I grew up, I grew up in Detroit. My dad was a factory worker and my grandfather, and we lived in this factory workers neighborhood. And my um, we my grandmother and grandfather lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs at this flat. And um, my grandmother raised me till I was about eight, and then we moved away, moved out further, and, and you know got a house of our own. But um, so my grandfather would, my papa would come home from work. He worked the midnight shift, and when I would hear him come through the door, then I could go upstairs. And my mom and dad left for work, and so I would go. My earliest childhood memories are going down the stairs, through the basement, through their side of the basement, up their back stairs, and having breakfast with Papa. And he would pour me coffee. We would have coffee together like men, you know. And uh, later he told me that my coffee consisted of about that much coffee and about that much milk. But I thought I was the man. And I would drink coffee and have breakfast with Papa, and then I would spend the, way, the day with Mama until my mom got home from work. And then and when I started school, I would do the same thing. I would come home from school and immediately go upstairs, and we would spend the day together. And I can remember sitting with her out on the porch, and she would sing. And uh, she would sing like old country songs. She was raised in Kentucky. And she would sing Froggy went a courtin' and he did ride and all all this weird these weird country songs. And then when she would finish that stuff, then she would sing hymns. And um, one of her favorite was I go to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear as I tarry there, none other has ever known. And she would finish those songs, and then she would say, Stevie, God is here. And I was three, four, five. I didn't know what that meant. But later, as I grew and came to God myself, I understood. I understood that God is everywhere. He's at school with us. He's at work with us. He's in this building with us. He's in our families. He's in the people that I see on the street. 
You know, C.S. Lewis, another quote of his is that the holiest person that you will ever see is the person right in front of you. God is everywhere. We find him through purity of heart. Giving. Now, I can talk about this because I'm not paid for this. I'm not part of the church budget. So I can talk about giving. There are more family units in this church than at any time since we split off from the bridge in to form the bridge in 2007. But we are giving less. There are almost 30 more families in this church than in 2007. But that community was giving more than we're giving. And I know it's hard. It may be the struggling economy, and we just don't know if it's going to last. But we hold on to our money tightly. It's difficult to give God control of that. We definitely want to retain control of the finances. Now, if I asked for a show of hands, including my own, and I said, I ask you to, if, who's first in your life? Then we would all, most everybody in here would say, God is first in my life. Um, but I think it would be good today if we went home and asked ourselves that question again. Who is first in my life? And then pull out our check register and answer the question. Giving is an aspect of purity of heart. So, from age 10 to 14, my one grandmother, my grandmother Howard, would, um, she would collect me in the summer, and she would get one of her girlfriends. How can you have a girlfriend when you're like 60 or whatever? But anyway, so she would get her girlfriend, and they would drive me down south to spend the summer with my other grandmother. So here I am in the back seat of this car with these two old ladies. I'm like 12. And here is the road this way, and they would drive like this and talk to each other about really important things and interesting things like canning and quilting and making jam. And I'm watching the road and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm 12. I'm going to die with these two old ladies. No one will ever find me. And we would drive through Ohio and people would honk their horns. One time we were going down this one-way street the wrong way and people were honking their horn and we had just crossed the Ohio River into Kentucky, and my grandmother's comment was, Now see, people are honking their horns at us. They are so friendly in the South. But anyway, we would get down there, and she would drop me off with my other grandmother, Reed, and uh, on the farm. And so my grandmother, Reed, lived by this small Social Security pension and whatever contributions that her kids would give her. And we would spend the summer on the farm with no TV and just a radio and, you know, just gathering eggs and whatever. But anyway, she would take me to church on Wednesday, Wednesday night, and Sunday. And uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. 
And she kept four bills loose in her purse, a one, a five, a ten, and a twenty. And when it, beca- when it would come time for the offering, she would hold up her purse and I would pick a bill, hoping that it wasn't a twenty. Because if it was a twenty, then we would have several meals of beans and potatoes and cornbread. Um, but I asked her about it one time, and she said, well... She said, it's, it doesn't matter. She said, when you give God control of your life, when you let God into your life, there's a certain peace to that. And I just let him choose what he wants to on Sunday. Try never to hold on to things too tightly, especially money. Because money is only for the passage through life. It's not life itself. Giving money is sometimes a breaking point concerning purity of heart because it is often a separating point between our will and God's will. Luke 21. Just then he looked up and saw the rich people dropping offerings in the collection plate, and then he saw a poor widow put in two pennies, and he said, The plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. All those others have given offerings they will never miss. She gave extravagantly what she could not afford. Since 2007, Bill Gates has given $28 million to eradicating diseases that afflict the poor. His net worth is $57 billion. A dollar to Bill Gates is like us picking up pennies in the parking lot. But we would say, wow, Bill Gates, what a giver, $28 million. In reality, that figures to 0.047%, not even 1%. Another reality is that people who claim to be Christians and actually go to church more than Easter and Sunday give a whopping 1.7% of their income. So, it really isn't about the amount of money we give. It's the motive for giving. It's the motive behind the open hand or the closed fist. It is either giving as God has laid on our hearts or giving as we have calculated. It's not 10 or 15 or 20 percent that matters. That's all part of the law. It's the motive. It's your heart. We're either God's man pursuing purity or we're our own man pursuing ourselves. The proof is in the check register. Communications. Back in Eden, this was a daily function. God was there. Adam and Eve were there. They talked every day. God came down daily in the cool of the evening, and he spoke with them. Now, for a long time, I spoke with God, I thought. I communicated with him on two instances. One is when I was standing on the deck of my sinking ship, yelling for help. Or... 
I found myself in bed at night, and I hadn't spent any time with him, and so I would pray. And so this is what would happen, bone-tired, going to bed after a 15-hour workday. Our Father, oh, say, can you see? And forgive us our trespasses as we fourscore and seven years ago. For thine is the kingdom gone. I also prayed about things that I should have been doing things about. If you can do something about it, then you really don't have any business praying about it. Oh God, please bless this meal to the nourishment of my body. Bless this supersized triple-decker bacon cheeseburger and these cheese and chili fries and supersized chocolate shake. Bless it to the nourishment of my body. (laughs) My prayer life was not real. And communication was not real. And I realized that if I didn't spend some time with God, I wasn't going to get anywhere. And that's always been my problem, time, giving God time. So I'm going to talk to you a moment now about a time, a a, a time and space when motive and time and action came together about the person in our congregation who shall remain nameless. Now, this person with his wife, Stacy, on a Cisco outing in downtown Phoenix, encountered a homeless man who gave him some big homeless sob story. We've all heard them, wanting a handout. He said he was once a truck driver, and he needed to get his license back in order to get him off the streets. And if he just had 20 bucks, he could, you know, put that towards getting his license. And this person took him up on it. So for the next two weeks, our hero drove the man around Phoenix to get the proper endorsements. He paid for motel rooms. He bought groceries. He sat with him at the DMV, which is a saintly thing. He paid for his license. He drove him to job interviews. And after he got a job, he helped him move into an apartment, paid the security deposit the first month rent, took him grocery shopping, and bought him a bus pass. This person likes people. I don't like people. He's retired. I'm still working. He has more time. I don't have that time. He has more money. So he can be the Good Samaritan. Do you see where this is going? I just used excuses one, two, three, and six. And I don't have to do anything. I can't imagine sitting in a car with a stranger and having conversation. That is just death to me. I know that if I go to hell, my punishment will be to run a bed and breakfast. (laughs) And I will have to talk to people all day long. I would hate to do what this guy did, what Bruce did. But purity of heart is not so much what he did. It was the motivation for doing this. It was the dedication of his resources, time and money. 
Because for the pure of heart, motivation is a timeless thing. Purity of heart occurs when we ask God what he will do, and then we actually do it. The plan. So if we're to find Eden, it's going to come in bursts. It's not going to become in constancy. We are incapable of constancy. But Eden, in the Garden of the Spirit, we can have conversations with God in which he has the first and the last word. The eye opens to him with the center of our humility, and it is possible to speak with him and have him speak with us. To live in the Spirit is to desire what we cannot see, and so we give up what we do see and choose to participate in the realm of the Spirit. We find purity of heart when we give up our motivations and commit our time and energy and resources to His will. The pure in our heart is one who is humble, who takes in simplicity what God gives him and leaves the rest. He takes God on any terms that God chooses. The monk Thomas Merton put it this way, There is no program or system of contemplation or prayer which may carry you into the presence of God. Rather, it's just the expectation of being, not getting. And the motivation to practice the silence, the detachment, the humility, and absence of time, which will generate a momentary purity of heart, which calls forth the presence of God. Silence, detachment, humility, time. Uh, in my honors world history class at school, uh, last spring we were talking about philosophers, and um, Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, talks about imperatives. And these are things that are always true. So it is always true to tell the truth. It is always right to not steal. Okay? Well, I couldn't convince, I hammered these kids, I could not convince them that there were any imperatives in life. Everything was situational. So, it's, yes, that's right, it's always wrong to steal, except when, well, it's always right to tell the truth, but, and we live in that. That's the way we live our lives. There are no imperatives. Uh, the problem is that God <laughs> speaks in imperatives. Um, we, are not, we operate in this gray area of situational ethics. God operates in imperatives, in absolutes. So at the end of this, I ask the kids to write their code of chivalry or their code of conduct. What, what they would do if there were imperatives in their lives? How would they look at it? What would they write as an imperative? The things that they must do. So this is uh, T.J. Effington. This is a kid in my class, and he wrote this code. I will defend those in distress, resist temptation, serve those around me, live simply, pursue knowledge, and remain steadfast in my pursuit of God. I will listen, be a friend, and care for those who need it. 
I will never refuse a woman the dignity that is her right. I will fulfill my duties and my promises. I will leave my family name better than I found it. I will respect my elders and peers and teach those I can. I will handle my anger with patience. I will exemplify charity in the way I treat others. And I will be an example to others in all I do and say. It was a great exercise for these kids to do, to think about life and what was an imperative for them. And I, would, and I have done this myself. I'm not going to read you my code, but uh, I think it's a good exercise to do, to think of how much God is in your life and what are imperatives that will allow us to expand his presence. Purity of heart is return to the simplicity of Eden. It's God and us. It's recognizing that life is in all things sacred. And our purpose is to become one again with him, with his likeness and his image. When we attach ourselves to God by detachment from other things, that is the path back to Eden. Purity of heart is to will one thing. It is to will the will of God in our own lives. The life of each of us has two threads. One is the thread of our spirit, the inner man, and then the thread of our will that winds into the world. And when we find ourselves at the exact point where these two threads come together as we give ourselves to God, then God becomes the guide for our outward action And the product of our lives becomes his desire and not our own. It is our freedom of the will. It is our freedom from ourselves and from the world that will bring us back to Eden. It's a detachment from our will and giving it up to God that is going to bring purity of heart. Lord, bless us today in this place, in your presence. Father, we are tired of walking in the desert making circles. Help us to find a path back to the promised land, the path to Eden, the path to simplicity, to your presence, so that we can walk and talk with you in purity of heart. God, help us to free ourselves from the world and from our own will. And ask with our hearts, what would you have us do, God? What would you have us do? Father, bless us on our walk today. And we thank you for being here today with us and your presence in our lives. Amen.